and continue our theme uh, of Kingdom of Heaven, uh, where heaven and earth meet. We've been doing this all year. Uh, we're going to stay in it uh, all year. Themes help me stay on track and help give you all an idea of what uh, to expect. Uh, but where heaven and earth meet, and it's kind of covered up. But there's a tabernacle back here. And the tabernacle is like the mobile temple before they had the temple in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, and it was a place where God's presence was said to dwell. Uh, so it was the place in the Hebrew scriptures, the first part of the Bible, uh, where heaven uh, and earth met. Now then Jesus comes onto the scene, uh, and he's the place where heaven and earth meet. And he says, our theme verse right there, also right there, uh, where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And I like that translation, has arrived, instead of some of the other translations say it's at hand or it's come near, because when it's has arrived, that means it's here. That means heaven isn't just this far off in distance and in time. It's a, it's a present reality. And a really cool thing about uh, this has arrived here is that one of the meanings of that Greek uh, phrase, because the second part of the Bible, what we typically call the New Testament, um, I prefer to call it the Greek scriptures because it's written uh, mostly in Greek. Um, I'm not going to lie, y'all. I glanced out there and Dorothy freaked me out. <laughs> that was spectacular. I was like, oh, there's some people sitting. Who's that standing? That's Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz. Um, podcast people, we have a cardboard cutout of Dorothy in our foyer. And I just caught a glimpse of her and she kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, but anyway, um, that phrase, that's where we're at, that phrase. Literally means to join one thing to another. So that makes great sense for that to be our theme verse of a theme that's all about where heaven and earth meet. And so with our theme verse coming from Matthew, uh, we're going to spend all year uh, in Matthew. Matthew's uh, gospel is about 28 chapters. Uh, now, gospel cha- or Bible chapters aren't like textbook chapters, thank God. Um, but um, it'd, be, it'd be tough to really do justice to those 28 chapters in just a 30-week Uh, school year. So we've split it up into three series, and I am super excited because tonight we are starting our second series, uh, which we're just calling People, looking at some of the people that Jesus interacted with. Uh, Now that's a little bit of a a misdirect tonight because actually the four people we're going to be focused on, uh, Jesus never interacted with them uh, because they were long since um, gone when when he arrived um, on the scene. But I think the mention of these four people uh, especially very early in Matthew's gospel, sets the tone for um, how Jesus handles his personal interaction with folks. That's where we're going tonight. Really excited about it. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. God, thank you for each person here. Uh, thank you for uh, just the, the worship through song that, uh, that we've been a part of, and just thank you so much for, for each person that, that is here tonight or, or listen to the podcast, or watching the live stream, whatever, God. And I just pray for the next little bit, God, that you would speak for me, that you would say exactly what you want me to hear, no, that you would say exactly what you want me to say, and that you would help us hear exactly what you want us to hear. That's what it is. Um, make it good. Make it what you know it needs to be. Uh, thank you for Jesus. To his name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, now, as those of us who have been to the inner message have already realized, tonight's a little bit different. Uh, if this is your first time, well, if you come back again, it'll look different then. But that'll be normal, not different. Anyway, um, normally the room's not turned sideways like this. Uh, Normally we use that big screen instead of this uh, TV for song lyrics and announcements and my slides and stuff. Normally I don't sit the whole time, Um, though I have sat on the box drum a couple times this year, which has been kind of fun, like I'm in the band, but not really. Uh, Normally I work from an outline, uh, not a transcript like I'm doing uh, tonight, Uh, not a transcript, a manuscript. 
Stick to the script, Donnie. Um, normally, uh, we have some discussion, but not a ton, and normally that partition, to participation is just kind of shouted out, not really using a mic or anything, that we're going to pass around a little bit later, because when we're going to start discussing uh, tonight, uh, I don't think the chaos that is CCF is the way to do it tonight, so we're going to change it up a little bit. Um, but all that to say that tonight's a bit out of the norm, which makes really good sense, Uh, Because the passage we're going to look at tonight is also a bit uh, out of the norm. But before we get to that, I haven't shown a clip from a movie in a really long time. And, oh man, when I thought about this, when God was like, here's an idea for a talk, I was like, ooh, that's a good idea. And then he was like, and here's the movie you can show. I was like, oh, that'll work. And I was like, good idea, Lord. And he was like, of course it's a good idea. Um, So in this scene, we're going to watch a scene from the Will Smith and, um, oh, what's her name? Ava Mendez movie, Hitch. Um, just uh, quite the thing for sure. Um, and in this scene, Hitch has taken Sarah uh, on a date to Ellis Island and arranged a tour with a friend of his who works there. Um, he's arranged uh, a bit of a surprise for her uh, related to her family. It's about a minute and a half clip. Um, stick with it. If you haven't seen it, it's gonna, there's going to be a little curveball thrown at you, but it'll be worth it. So take a look. And did not go as expected for poor old Hitch. Uh, Just one of those horrible family legacies we've all tried to forget. Now, hopefully none of us can identify, you know, perfectly with that example. Uh, But chances are all of our families, all of our family trees have a few limbs uh, we try to forget. I mean, even Disney families have those limbs they try to forget. We don't talk about Bruno. No, 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 no. And maybe we think, nah, Donnie, my family doesn't have anyone like that, that, you know, we've tried to forget. Maybe not. Or maybe it was somebody like many generations ago, and the couple generations right after them decided to not sing about not talking about them, but actually didn't talk about them. And so now here you are, here we are, eight, nine generations removed, and we have no idea that we had a butcher of Cadiz in our family tree or something. Um, because it is possible for people to be forgotten if we don't, if we don't talk about it. And if that happens, the only way that, that those people are remembered is if somebody does what, what Hitch did there. If they do some research, do some digging to try to rediscover uh, those limbs of the family tree that have been forgotten. Uh, and I think that idea of people being forgotten is what's going to make tonight helpful. Because we're going to see that God often centers the people that others would rather forget. Okay, God oftentimes puts the spotlight on people that other folks wish were in the shadows. And I think tonight's going to be useful for us to realize that when we feel forgotten, overlooked, ignored, God still sees us. Now, depending on how familiar you are with with Matthew's uh, gospel, you may be thinking, okay, Donnie's talking about family trees and people. And he said something about this being kind of early in Matthew's gospel. But surely, he's not about to do a dinner and a message talk about Jesus' genealogy. Surely, he's not going to do that. Well, surely I am. And don't call me Shirley. (laughs) So then maybe you're like, okay, that makes sense. Because some of the people in Jesus' genealogy did some really bad things. So I'm going to relate it back to the butcher of Cadiz to show that our past family members don't define us. And that even Jesus had some sketchy relatives and that God used even some of those really sketchy folks to point to his son. And my response to that is, nope, I'm not doing that. Instead, 
we're going to use tonight to kind of preview our people series. Because over the next several Thursday nights, like going into next semester actually a little bit, we're going to look at some of the people that Jesus chose to interact with. And we're going to see that he often seeks out the folks that other people ignore. He looks for the people that others try to not see. He goes to the margins of society to meet the people who have been pushed there. And so Matthew records a lot of cases of Jesus paying special attention to the people that are often overlooked. But before any of those stories, he records Jesus' genealogy. And in doing so, he pays special attention to some folks that are often completely overlooked in genealogies. Now, the entire genealogy is 17 verses long. Uh, But the good news for y'all is that the four folks I want us to pay attention to tonight, and I want us to pay attention to them because I believe Matthew wanted us to pay attention to them, and I think he wanted us to pay attention to them because of the way he saw Jesus pay attention to often overlooked people. These four people show up in just the first six verses. So you only have to sit through me reading six verses of genealogies, not 17. So here we go. Of course, I'm the one reading the names out loud, so I should be, you know, it's more of a break for me. But the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is literally how Matthew starts his account of Jesus' time on earth. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Now, that took um, two pages, and I couldn't get all the names on there that I wanted. I mean, they're on there, but they're not all on one screen. So here's the four names again, just one slide. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Now, I don't know how much you know about these folks. Uh, We're going to talk about them a good bit. But the fact that all of their names appeared in that genealogy in some form of this person fathered this person by one of these four, would lead you to believe that these four people are? Hey, they're women. All right, so so what? Obviously, we didn't, we, you know, we got, you got, got to have women if we're going to have babies. So what's the big deal? I mean, why, why is this worth a Thursday night talk? Normally, this would be the point where I'm just like, all right, what do you think? Just shout it out and go from there. Uh, but I just frankly don't think that's super feasible tonight. So uh, we got two mics. Britton's got one of them. And Sandra's got another one. Uh, so we're going to do a little more order than we normally do, and honestly, that I like. Um, we're going to raise our hand, and they're going to get the mic to you so, you so we can all hear, and so the people on the podcast and the um, live stream, that's a thing, uh, can hear. Now, I may have to cut this off. If I cut you off, I'm sorry. If you don't get a chance to speak, I'm sorry, but I know we're already going to be pushed for time anyway, and I'm trying to be respectful of everybody's time, especially on a retreat weekend, because... Ain't nobody packed yet. I mean, let's be honest. Um, So the question again, what's so special about having women mentioned in a genealogy? All right, let's go Caitlin, and then we'll go Ashton. So Caitlin, Sandra's coming to you, and there we go. Um, In the Roman world, everything was patriarchal and goes through, like, male lines. So having women means that you do, like, the opposite of what's the norm. 
Not only that, but also uh, when it was going through the genealogy, it's not like it listed every woman. It was only these four women. So their importance is also highlighted. Ashley kind of jumping ahead of me a little bit there, but we're going to get there. That's okay. That's a good point. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's, yes, good. Good stuff there. So, Matthew starts off um, his account here uh, with Jesus' genealogy, and that makes sense for a Jewish man to do. If you're not familiar with this idea, there's four accounts of Jesus' time on earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, They're all very different because they're all written by four different people, um, and they're written also to different audiences. That is something you miss sometimes when you read the Bible. It's not just about who is writing, but it's also about who are they writing to. Okay, People say different things. Matthew, for example, is writing to mostly Jewish people. So he can start his genealogy with Abraham, and everybody's like, cool, we know who that is. Luke is writing to Gentiles. So Luke does his, and Gentiles are non-Jewish people. Luke does his genealogy backwards. He starts with Jesus and goes all the way back past Abraham, all the way to Adam, and then to God. Because he's talking to people who have potentially no idea. So your your audience changes things up here. So for Matthew to start, Matthew, a Jewish man who's writing to uh, other Jews. His gospel is commonly referred to as the Jewish gospel, which is why he's got so many Hebrew scripture references. It makes perfect sense for him to start with this. He, he's writing to people who really value family lineages. But, but, it, but these women, you know, um, Ashton mentioned uh, maybe there's something super important about them. This is an intentional choice. I mean, this is a decision. This isn't just like he just starts writing and randomly words start coming out. Um, and it was very atypical, as, uh, as, as Caitlin mentioned. At patriarchal society, this typically uh, was not done. Um, Luke doesn't mention any women. I am like 95% sure of that. Um, and if you scroll on your phone and find out I'm wrong, please don't yell it out right now. Just tell me later. Um, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't, use any, he doesn't, use, he doesn't mention any women. But, but Matthew decided to mention these four women. And Ashton makes a really good point. Why these four? Like, why not mention Sarah, Abraham's wife? Why not mention um, Rachel and Leah, sisters who end up uh, giving birth to a number of men who end up being uh, having some of the 12 tribes of, of Israel named after them. Why, why these four? Now, I'm not, I'm not asking you this to tell me about these four. Okay, That's not what this next question is. But what do you think? Again, this is not, a, oh, well, she did this, and she did that, and she did this, and she did that. Not about that. But why would he pick four specific people, four specific women, not just mention all of them? I mean, he could have done that. He could have taken the time to, to have mentioned who the mother of, of everybody was. Any, any, any thoughts? And I'm, by the way, I'm not looking for a right answer. I'm just wondering what you might think as far as why would he have chosen to mention, you know, these four women in the genealogy that culminates with Jesus? Uh, Ashley, what you got? Well, I'm thinking that, like, you know, he's saying this to the Jewish people, and I'm thinking, like, what you said of, like, they know these names. So would they know these women's names? Okay. I don't know. Sandra's coming, Andrew. (laughs) He's trying to push a narrative of, like, 
these four women and trying to like start off the narrative of Jesus's life. Ooh, okay. So maybe these four point to something else. All right. That's good stuff. I like. See, this is why this is why I want to do more of these because y'all always just say such good stuff. It's I gotta get a rocking chair. I'm gonna really, really be rocking up here. So. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's good stuff. These, these women are well-known. Like, he doesn't have to explain who they are. Caitlin, do you want to say something else? Sandra's got the mic. I was going to say, I don't remember all of them, but isn't Ruth Gentile? Oh, we're going to get there. And just, like... This is, this is, this is, we're going to get to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get to all of them. But, yes, we're going to get to that right now, actually. Uh, we're going to look at all of their stories individually in just a little bit, but at least three of the four, and depending on which Bible scholar you ask, maybe all four of them are Gentiles. Okay, there's a little bit of debate about Bathsheba. We're not really sure, but um, oh, they're gone. Uh, but Tamar, Rahab, Ruth are Gentiles. So he mentions women in Jesus' genealogy, and not just women, they're Gentile women. If you're a Jewish person reading that in the first century Jewish world, that doesn't sit super well. Because you've been told your whole life that Jews and Gentiles are supposed to be separate. Okay, so there's got to be something going on here. And i got to give a shout-out to Sandra for this next verse because I hadn't thought about this until she brought it up in something else we were talking about. But maybe he mentions Gentiles because he remembers Abraham's promise or God's promise to Abraham. In Genesis twenty-two eighteen, God says this to Abraham, All the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you've obeyed my command. All the nations, not just all the Jewish people, not just all the people living in Israel at that time, all the nations of the earth. If you were here last week, we talked about how Jesus doesn't draw lines. He draws one big circle. And that circle includes everybody, Jew and Gentile. So he's definitely making a point including women. He's also definitely making a point including these four, three, definitely, maybe four uh, Gentile women. By the way, I just want to point something out there. I don't flippantly say it's either three or four because I don't know. And, and people a whole lot smarter than me, some think... Bathsheba's Jewish, some, some think she's not. You can disagree on a thing here and there and still read the same Bible with people and love them, okay, and have conversations and, you know, grow closer to Jesus together even if you disagree on some things or you're not sure. That's okay. But what is very obvious, whether Bathsheba's Jewish or not, is that Jesus' love for all, His inclusion for all, Jesus seeing all people had such a profound impact on Matthew that he included these three or four Gentile women in his account of Jesus' genealogy. And when I say Jesus saw people, I don't mean Jesus saw all the people that had their lives together. I mean he saw everybody, including people who had been pushed to the margins of society, people who were treated more like objects than people, people who were all on their own, and people who were victimized. And we see all of these people in the four women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. And I'll explain that in just a little bit. Now, to be fair, there are actually five women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Uh, Mary, his mama, is mentioned at the end. Because um, you should. You've got you to talk about mama. Um, but we're focusing on Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba tonight. That being said, 
Don't think for a second that unmarried, pregnant, teenage Mary had it easy. Okay? Because she didn't. So, we're going to start with Tamar. <sighs> Maybe the most challenging one of the bunch. So, here we go. Matthew 1 through 3 tells us that, or 1 3, tells us that Judah and Tamar were the parents of Perez and Zerah. Now, we don't need a mic for this, it's just a real short little answer. Does anybody know what Judah was to Tamar? Spoiler, he's not her husband. Anybody know this story? It's, uh, he's her father-in-law. So this is messed up. So Tamar married one of Judah's sons. And Genesis 38 tells us that this son was evil. And God killed him before they had any kids. So the common practice in the ancient Near East um, and discussed in the Israelite law of Deuteronomy 25, which didn't exist yet, Okay, we haven't gotten to, to the law yet. We're still in Genesis. But the common practice in the ancient Near East was for another brother to marry the widow and their first son would be reckoned to the dead brother to keep his name from dying out. Now, I know right now you're like, what? This seems, but okay, but that was, that was how things were done then. It was a society where, a society where family lineage was of amazing importance. And in such a society, this was done to help protect the family, the family name of this brother who's passed away, as well as the widow. Because if you're a widow in Jesus, in, in first, not even first century, sorry, ancient Near East, you're up the creek. Okay? At least this way, she's got somebody looking out for. Now, I am not at all saying that this is not strange by our standards and, and, and tough to understand, but just realize there's, a, there's an intent there. This brother refuses to have a child with Tamar. So God just smokes him. <laughs> Judah then tells her, okay, go live back with your parents as a widow in your parents' house. And when my youngest son's old enough, you can marry him. But that doesn't happen. Because it says in Genesis 38 that Judah was afraid that God might strike his youngest son dead too because he did that to... Um, that's all, all those other boys. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She takes off her widow's clothing and disguises herself as a temple prostitute. See, you thought the Bible was boring. I don't think so. <laughs> now, to be clear, this is not God's temple. God's temple does not exist yet. That is not a thing. So this is not this is some, some pagan temple. She disguises herself as a temple prostitute, and when Judah comes by and asks to sleep with her, she says, Sure. And he leaves his ring and his staff with her as payment. She gets pregnant. And upon hearing that she's pregnant, Judah declares, and keep in mind there's no law of Israel yet, but this is just kind of how it was in the ancient Near East. He declares that she should be burned to death because that was what was supposed to happen to, uh, to, to women who practice prostitution. So, she's threatened with her life. She shows him the ring and the staff and goes Mari Povich on him and says, You are the father! <laughs> to which Judah responds, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. So Tamar is put away. I mean, literally, moves her out of his house. Because that was the way it worked. The, the, when, when, when a young man 
married a woman. She came to live with him in his parents' house. Judah, who is in the parents' house, tells her to go live with her parents. He's trying to get rid of her. She was put away. People tried to forget about her, to ignore her, but she refused to just fade away, which honestly makes me think of another woman from the land of Canaan that cries out to Jesus for help despite lots of people ignoring her. And for more on that, be here in about a month when CCF alum Roel Salinas does a message uh about Jesus' interaction with the Canaanite woman whose daughter is oppressed by a demon. See, I think the reason some of these people are mentioned, these four women are mentioned, is because they point to other interactions that Jesus has had. Now, we're not going to have time to do this for all four of the women's stories, but I get that the the Tamar story is whacked out. And I don't want to chase this rabbit trail for too long, but I understand there might be some questions about this whole brother marries her, struck down, temple prostitute, anything and I'm happy to talk about that individually later if you want to, but if, if there are questions that you want to ask about that, I'm going to give you one shot <laughs> because I don't want us to be chasing this rabbit all night long. There are much more important things to talk about than this craziness. Yeah, baby. Okay. So she had two children, correct? Yeah, she had twins. Okay, so they were twins. He didn't yes. just... Yes, it actually, <laughs> it actually says that after the twins were born, Judah never slept with her again. Okay. So... And... Did anything, like, so she got kicked out of his house, went to go live with his parents. Did the prostitution thing trick, not really tricked him. He fell into that himself. Um, <laughs> but so then and after he said she's more righteous than I, like, what happened next? Did he pay his child support? <laughs> well, they are, those, those kids are reckoned to his son, so yeah. He would, he would have taken care of him. Nice. Yep, okay. he would have had to. All right. Good question, Speed. All right, so let's talk about Rahab now. We meet her in Joshua chapter 2 in the town of Jericho. Anybody know what she did for a living? She was a prostitute. Oh, just look at Jesus' genealogy. This is fascinating stuff. Um, so some spies from the Israelite army go to the city of Jericho to scout it out. Rahab hides them from the king of Jericho. And then she lets them out safely because she says, I don't have a slide for this, sorry, but listen to what she says. I know that the Lord has given you the land for the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Rahab the prostitute understands that the kingdom of heaven is where heaven and earth meet because she calls God the God in heaven above and the earth beneath. So before they go in to destroy Jericho, Joshua, who's the commander of the Israelite army, commands that Rahab and her family be brought out safely, and they were basically adopted into the Israelite family. Uh, Rahab is actually mentioned uh, much later on in the Bible um, in a book called Hebrews, uh, which is uh, near the end of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11 is oftentimes called the Hall of Faith because it lists all of these Jewish people that were super faithful to God in the first part of the Bible, all of these Jewish people. And Rahab. She gets mentioned in the chapter that highlights the most faithful people uh, in the Old Testament. Rahab uh, gets mentioned. Rahab was objectified, seen more as an object than as a person. And it's not in Matthew's gospel, but this makes me think of a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 that the religious leaders of Jesus' day used as a pawn as an object to trap Jesus. Now, Ruth, 
She's got a whole book written about her. She's from Moab. Caitlin mentioned that. She's a Gentile. She's from Moab. Uh, Moabites and Israelites not only didn't get along, they had some really violent conflicts. Uh, th- it, things were not good. Uh, basically what happens, how, how Ruth enters the story, is uh, a woman named Naomi and, and her, uh, her husband and their two sons leave the land of Israel and head to the land of Moab because there's a really bad uh, famine. Uh, in Moab, uh, her two sons... Uh, get married. One of them marries Ruth. Sometimes later, Naomi's husband dies, and both her sons die. So it's Naomi, Ruth, and the other uh, sister-in-law, whose name is like Orpah. It looks like Oprah, but it's not. I always get it confused. Um, and so Naomi says, all right, I've heard the famine's over. I'm going back to Israel. Y'all just, y'all stay here. The other one does. Ruth's like, nope, I'm going with you. She actually says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Uh, where, you go, I, where, where you die, I will die, and there be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And if you're like, wow, how do you have that memorized? Well, because I told Beth that on our wedding day. That was what I said to her when I handed her our, um, her, her ring. So it's not a marriage thing, but it's pretty cool. Um, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. I had a friend at our reception. I may have never told you this, Beth. A friend at our reception who was like, dude, I don't know if I could ever say that to a woman. I was like, well, then never get married. Because that's how important marriage is. If you can't say, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates me and you, then you ain't got no business getting married. That's not even in here, but there we go. So... um, they head to the land of Israel. Ruth leaves everything she's ever known to be with her mother-in-law. Now, two unmarried women are not going to fare well in the ancient Near East. But Ruth takes up what's called gleaning in barley and wheat fields, which basically means she picked up the scraps that the workers in the field dropped as they harvested the crops. Naomi's too old to do this, so Ruth was all on her own to do enough to be able to survive and to provide for Naomi. She's all on her own. A woman all on her own trying to just do what she can to get by, which makes me think of a woman that Matthew writes about in chapter 9, a woman with a bleeding disorder. See, because blood made you unclean in Jesus' day, and if you're unclean, nobody wanted anything to do with you. You're all on your own. Lastly, we're going to talk about Bathsheba. Now, if you grew up going to church, you've probably heard the story of David and Bathsheba. Um... One of our last questions here, I think, for a while at least. How was that story told to you? How was that story told uh, to you about David and Bathsheba? What you got, Ashton? Here you go. <laughs> the first time I learned about it was through the Shrek song from Hallelujah <laughs> about the cutting of the And, like, I saw you there. Basically, like, I remember... We had, like, a Sunday school thing and this little, like, anyways, it was, like, um, it was, like, almost like a comic book. I remember, like, there was, like, okay, a how, picture. How was their relationship? Yeah. Oh, it was, it was creepy. I mean. It was creepy. But David basically sees her bathing on a roof and was like, yep, want it. <laughs> <laughs> and he has it. her husband killed. And, yeah, it's weird. It's weird. What you got, uh, Charles? 
I wish I learned it in Sunday school, but basically that. But her husband, he had her husband in the front line of the army in the war yeah, because we're, he we're, was yeah, jealous. We're, yeah, we're, we'll, get, we'll get to that. Yeah. What did they have, according to people that, that you heard this from? David and Bathsheba had an affair. Had okay. an affair. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about this for a second. Let's read the passage and then ask ourselves some things about this. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Stop looking, David. David sent and inquired about the woman and one, and that one is one of his servants, says, "Um, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That's the bravest dude in the Bible. <laughs> the king's like, I want her. And he's like, okay, just to make sure. You want Uriah? Uriah, by the way, is one of Jesus, uh, Jesus, David's personal bodyguards. And this dude's like, her. Dave, Uriah's wife. David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And we are always told that, this, that they had an affair. I've even had people tell me that, um, that by... Being out in the open bathing, she was actually uh, trying to trap David. Um, That's crap. When we say that two people had an affair, that implies mutual consent. Could she have said no? No. David's the king, and in the ancient Near East, kings get what they want one way or another. Bathsheba's not a perpetrator, y'all. She's a victim. Now, I don't know what happened once she's in David's bedroom. I don't know how violent things got. I don't know what happened. I don't know what degree of rape he might have been charged with or if it would have been sexual assault or whatever. She didn't, it didn't matter if she consented. This is not an affair. This is a woman who was victimized, just straight up. Okay, that's, that's all that's going on here. Bathsheba was victimized. And here's the thing. I, I've looked. I can't think of any specific examples of such victimization being recorded in the Gospels. But I am 99.9% confident that Jesus interacted with women who had been victimized in the exact same way that Bathsheba was by men in positions of power. I have no doubt that that's the case. I think... There are a variety of reasons that Matthew included these four women in this genealogy. One of them, I think, is because we're going to meet people later in Matthew's gospel who have a lot in common with these women. We'll meet people who were put away and hoping to be forgotten, like Tamar. We'll meet people who, like Rahab, were objectified. We'll meet people who were all on their own, like Ruth in those barley and wheat fields. And we'll meet people who were victims, like Bathsheba. That's one reason I wanted to start our people series with these four women. Because we're going to have echoes of them throughout the rest of this series. That was a lot. I'm going to get to what I think we can learn from these women and why I th- what we can learn from why I think Matthew um, included them in his genealogy. But I do want to give a chance, if, you, if you've got questions about either of those four women and their stories, and want to ask, and again, you can ask me later tonight, whatever, but if you've got questions about any of that stuff, you know, you're probably not the only one, so if you want to ask something cool, if not, that's cool too. 
Okay. If you got one, talk to me later. Um, we looked at these stories of these four women, but now I want to make sure we don't just leave it as, all right, cool story, but I mean, so what? I mean, what does that have to do with me? First, the inclusion of these women in Jesus' genealogy flies in the face of the argument that the Bible is anti-woman. Okay, there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians, a lot of non-Christians who will tell you the Bible is anti-woman. If we had more time, I'd open up the floor for a discussion about some of these passages that are misused to say the Bible is anti-woman because it's an important conversation and I'm happy to have it, but we're going long already. I don't want us to go super, super, super duper long. Uh, but if you want to talk about that, I'm happy to have that conversation later tonight, anytime, whatever. The Bible's not anti-woman. It's not. I want to say this really clearly. When somebody tells me that the Bible is anti-woman, I'm sure of one thing. They have not read it. You cannot read the whole thing. You cannot read the whole thing and think the Bible's anti-woman. Okay? You can't. Yes, there are parts that when you pull them out of context, you're like, what the crap? That sounds terrible. You're like, didn't, didn't that dude named Paul say that the wife's body doesn't belong to her, it belongs to the husband? Yes, he did. And in the next sentence, he said, the husband's wife doesn't belong to him, it belongs to his wife. Mutual submission. That's the thing. The Bible is not anti-woman. Yes, there are parts that seem like it, but when you look at the context, when you know what's going on, you actually see that the Bible is revolutionary when it comes to discussing how women should be treated and seen. Revolutionary. So far ahead of its time. Yes, we wish it went further. We're 2,000 years removed. We can't hold 1st century AD and then like 1st millennia BC documents to 21st century standards. The Bible is revolutionary in how it discusses how women should be treated and seen. Paul, the first ever Christian missionary, started a bunch of churches, wrote a bunch of letters to those churches, told people everywhere he could about, um, about Jesus. Paul often gets accused of being a misogynist. Paul called a woman named Phoebe a deacon. And Paul uses the word deacon to describe positions of church leadership. Let me say that again. Romans 16.1, Paul calls Phoebe a deacon of the church in Sincrate. He is saying that she is in a position of leadership. And there are a ton of Bible scholars who think that when Paul finishes out some of his list and he's, and he's, um, and he's listing a bunch of people, finishes some of his letters by listing a bunch of people, that the first person he lists is the person who's reading the letter because Paul gave him the letter and said, here, go tell this, this group about it. And if that's true, that means Paul gave Phoebe the book of Romans, which is the most theologically dense and important book perhaps in the entire Bible. And he was like, you go explain it to them. And when they have questions, Phoebe, I trust you to answer it. A misogynist would not do that. He wouldn't. A first century misogynist would, would not write to women the way Paul does, treating them as, dare I say it, people. And calling out men for not seeing women as who they are, which is daughters of the heavenly king. Ladies, every one of you is a princess because you are a daughter of the heavenly king. The very fact that the Bible sees, and I mean really sees women at all, is unbelievably countercultural for the time in which it was written. 
Remember that I said that my hope for tonight was that it would be helpful for us to see that God centers the folks that many people would rather forget. Jesus often puts a spotlight on the folks that many of us just don't want to see. And seeing people is really, really important. i only got two pages left. I'm sorry. I know we're going along, but this is just important stuff. If you've been here long, you may have heard me use the phrase, see people. Okay, I realize I haven't said it that much recently. I need to get back into saying it because it's an important reminder. See people. I got it from the senior minister down at the church where I worked before I came here. That was his thing. He said, see people all the time. And I'll never forget one morning, he and I were driving back from a staff breakfast at Mama's Boy. Um, I wasn't paying attention to what time it was, and I drove down Baldwin Street during a class change. What a rookie freshman mistake. Like, who does that? Have you... Now, here's the thing about this, and some of y'all don't know this. There used to be a bus stop in front of Park Hall. Picture the most massive battle scene you've ever seen in a movie. I'm pretty sure half the people there had their faces painted blue like Braveheart. I mean, it was just crazy. This mass of humanity. So we're stopped right at the bus stop because traffic. And we've been stopped, y'all, for like three seconds. And that's when Watson, that was a senior minister, says, Holiday, who do you see? Oh, and I know that he's not saying he sees somebody from our church. I know he's saying that he sees someone. Like he really sees someone. So I start scanning the crowd, trying to figure out who it is that he sees. And he gives me like 10 seconds. He's like, get it together, Holiday. The brown-haired girl in the red sweatshirt. And in my mind, I'm like, brown-haired girl in the red sweatshirt at the University of Georgia. Gee, Watson, that really narrows it. And then I see her. Y'all, there's hundreds of people at that bus stop. And there she was. Young lady, brown hair, red sweatshirt. People all around her. But her body language and her facial expression showed that she's all alone. She felt like Ruth must have felt in those barley fields. The light turns green. Watson and I start moving. And I was like, how do you do that? And he said, I can't not. And then he said, now be careful. Because if you're thinking that you want to pray and ask God to be able to see people, realize something. Once you start seeing people, you can't not. And he was right. Monday, I was walking to the north deck from the main library where CC Free Food, our weekly on-campus lunch, was. So I was walking to get the truck so we could load back up. And I saw this young lady sitting on one of the benches on north campus. She's on her phone, and she's on the verge of tears. Now, y'all, I'm a 46-year-old man who's a stranger to her. I am not going to walk up to her and be like, hey, you doing okay? Mm-mm, it's not, not appropriate in any way, shape, or form. Like, she would probably burst into tears with that. So instead, I just prayed for her and prayed for whatever situation was going on. I'll probably never know what went on, what was going on. But I think God wanted me to see her. And that brings me to our question for tonight. If you're new, uh, rather than having a carefully crafted bottom line, st- bottom line statement, I like to leave us with a question. I think questions stick better. Normally, it's a first-person question because I think if you'll ask yourself a question, that sticks better than me asking you a question, but... We're not doing things normally tonight, so one more change. It's still a question, but it's not a first-person question. But it's not me asking you something, it's each of us asking God a question. So honestly, tonight's question is a prayer. God, who do you want me to see? 
I don't know how often you pray, but I'm asking each of us to pray this. And make no mistake, to pray this is a challenge. This is a terrifying prayer because he'll do it. He's going to show you. And then once you see whoever it is that God wants you to see, then you can't not see them. All right, Donnie, so like I pray it like tonight and then I'm done. I mean, honestly, I hope we'll all pray this every day, multiple times a day. But at the very least, I'm asking us to pray it until we feel the need to give someone that God wants us to see five bucks. Easy enough, Donnie, I don't have five bucks. And if I did, I really couldn't spare it, so I guess I don't have to do this then, do I? Wrong! I got five bucks for everybody. Okay? Um, they're sequential, which is kind of weird. Um, they are super crisp. Some of you might get two, but anyway. I'm going to be standing right there when we're done. Okay? And you get five bucks. Okay? Maybe you see somebody journeying through homelessness and you give it to them. If you do that, ask them their name and tell them yours. Maybe you see that your waitress is having a really tough day, so you add five bucks to the tip you were going to give. Maybe the look on your DoorDash delivery driver's face when he drops off the food makes it really clear he could use an extra five bucks. I don't know who it will be, but God does. And if we're courageous enough to ask him that, he'll show us. So who does God want you to see? Please don't play the, I see my friend and he sees me, so we'll just switch our fives. No, that's not going to change any of us. And the purpose of following Jesus is to change, to be more like him. And often one of the first things that needs to change is not just how we see, but who we see. Okay, so, I don't know, put it in your pocket, put it in the cup holder of your car, whatever. But may we have the courage to ask this question. God. Who do you want me to see? See, Matthew had the courage to defy norms that include four women, at least three of whom were also Gentiles in his genealogy of Jesus. And I can't think, can't help but think, that he prayed a lot asking God what in the world he wanted him to write. And God told him to include Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba in the genealogy of his son Jesus. I don't know all of the reasons why, but I think one was that God saw these women, and he wanted to make sure we see them too. What I'm wondering now is, who else he wants us to see? So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, as God shows us who he wants us to see. Let's pray. God, I am thankful that you see each of us. I am thankful that you know each of our names. That you see us at our best. You see us at our worst. And you see us at everything in between. God, I ask that you would give us the courage to ask you who you want us to see. That you would then give us the courage when we see them to just walk up to them and 
ask in their name and hand them five bucks. I don't know what this looks like, God. I don't know what this is going to look like for us. I really don't, but I, I just feel like this is what you want us doing. People get walked past every day, God. Help us to not do that. Help us to see people the way you see them, and then when we see them, to love them the way that you do. God, who do you want us to see? Amen.